The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And today on the show, we are going to explore all things in the sport of track and field. So if you've ever wondered just what are those specific events that make up a track and field competition, today we're going to find out. And to help us do that is UCI head coach of track and field, Jeff Perkins. He joined the UCI coaching staff in 2007 and became head coach in 2014. So welcome, Coach Perkins. How are you today? Thank you so much. I'm doing uh, Thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. We're really excited to explore this little bit of, believe it or not, kind of mysterious. You know, we watch the Olympics and we see a lot of events, but when you, when it comes down to it, it's like, what are all those events? And are they the same in the Olympics as at the university level? So, well, you know, before we get into that, where did you grow up and what'd you like to do when you were a kid? Uh, that's actually a great <laughs> question. I'm the son of a military fighter pilot. Oh. Um, so my father was in the Navy for 25 plus years. So I've seen just about every corner of the world. Yeah. Uh, so growing up was definitely not, I would say, the, the orthodox upbringing of most who spend yeah. the same you know, amount of time maybe in the same state or in the United States because we lived outside the United States for a little bit. So for me, I've gotten to see different cultures, different settings, different countries, different lifestyles, which has made me the person I am now. Growing up, I was into athletics, but definitely wasn't the best at it. So, you know, having to adjust and to get used to where we were, where we were living, whether that be on a naval base or off of a naval base in my upbringing, uh, definitely made me who I am to be kind of uh, interchangeable, moldable, and understanding that change is just a part of life. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I attended two different high schools, one out here in Camarillo, Camarillo High, and then uh -huh. I ended up graduating at. George C. Marshall High School, right outside of Falls Church, Virginia, which is near Alexandria, outside of the Washington, D.C. area. Wow. Yeah. So you even in high school, you were moving around. Do you have one or two most memorable places growing up that you were? Jacksonville, Florida, in my younger years, was definitely a spot that I remember well and that we enjoyed being. And then aside from Jacksonville, Atsugi, Japan, which was about an hour outside of Tokyo, Japan. Yeah. So uh, we were on a naval base there, but we did spend some time living in a Japanese house to 
be on a waiting list to live on a naval base because naval housing isn't necessarily always available for families that come in. So we had to be on a waiting list. And in the meantime, we lived off base in a Japanese house, which was very interesting. Yeah. Um, I remember that really well. In fact, and- uh, it was very different. Was it just because all your neighbors were Japanese or was the house? Uh, the house is what I remember the most. Uh-huh. Um, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, I expected everybody to be Japanese or live in Japan. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah. just, just from the standpoint of the house having paper thin walls, it's, you know, it snows in Japan. So it gets very cold in the wintertime. So you literally rely, there's no central AC or heat. So you re- rely on your kerosene heater. Wow. Your refrigerator is the size of the small office refrigerators you typically see, uh, and, it's <laughs> no. in the floor, and it's in the floor. Wow. Uh, everything's smaller. The Japanese live on much less in terms of yeah. resources and things in the household yeah. uh, than we do as Americans. So that was definitely an adjustment. Uh, but it was really cool, too, to experience it. We weren't in that house for very long. Gotcha. But, uh, How was that with having a fighter pilot dad? Looking back on it, was it? A lot expected of you or was it well it just seemed like growing up i didn't think twice about it i didn't really think twice about it he wasn't that pseudo you know top gun military father you know top gun was big while he was in his heyday and Uh, even though he wasn't kind of that uh, type of fighter pilot you know he uh, wasn't the showboater or what you would see in a movie half that uh, stuff that he saw in that movie was a little you know (laughs) okay Um, but he definitely he basically for six months out of a year lived on an aircraft carrier out in the middle of the Indian ocean. So, wow. you know, for us, we didn't get to see him a whole lot. So that was tough. And living in a foreign country with our mother, you know, raising us was tough, but you know, again, it made me who I am and you know, I appreciate it now at yeah. that time. It was, it was a definitely difficult, but you know, gotcha. yeah, he wasn't a pseudo military father at all. Gotcha. Were you drawn to track and field in high school? Yes. In fact, when I got to Camarillo High School as a freshman, I decided to go out for sports as most freshmen do. And track was definitely one of those. I, you know, remember getting into the blocks and trying to, you know, race another kid on the team and to kind of see where I was. And he blew my doors off. So I figured that wasn't for me. And I've actually gravitated myself over to the high jump and became a mentee as well as a teammate to a young man at that time who's still my best friend, Jeremy Fisher, he is, was a world-class athlete Wow! in the high jump, uh, uh-huh. ended up being uh, elite level. Wow. And so we just kind of connected from there. I, I ended up high jumping in high school, and then I left after my sophomore year to head over to Virginia and then finish my last two years of high school there. Gotcha. So, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is bad to say, like white man's disease jumping, I guess you didn't have that. <laughs> no, it's it, it surprisingly in our sport, particularly the high jump, it doesn't necessarily exist in terms of, I guess, what the movie White Man Can't Jump. It doesn't really exist in our sport in track and field in the high jump in particular, also as well as the pole vault. And those are two events for sure you see pretty good diversity in. Interesting. So does it not necessarily correlate to good spring of your step? Do you just I mean, you that? definitely need to have it. You need to have uh. that in your repertoire of, of athletic ability. But, you know, there's two different types of high jumpers. There's power high jumpers that can go from a short approach and are more off that bounce, as you're saying. And there's speed uh. high jumpers that are typically shorter that need to rely on their speed to get up off the ground and over the bar. Uh. Uh, and both Jeremy and I were speed high jumpers. And, you know, for him, him and I were maybe pushing 5'10". And I suppose so we weren't very tall. Yeah, I ended up being a six four high jumper with him. Six feet four really isn't that impressive in high school. He was actually ended up being a seven foot six high jumper. He was the number one high jumper in the United States at the time. Wow, so, 
Um, wow. I think in high school, he, he, he actually uh, cleared seven, two, seven feet, yeah. two inches. So it was pretty impressive for somebody that was only five foot nine because uh, there aren't a lot of those. Most high jumpers are six feet, six, two, six, four, six, five, some six, six. Oh. And so it's a little bit of a different game. Gotcha. So before you became head coach, you were an assistant to Hall of Fame UCI coach Vince O'Boyle. What did you learn from him? Vince is still a great mentor to me. I actually got off the phone with him last week. He is through and through, bleeds UCI blue and gold. And, you know, I learned a lot about UCI, a lot about Irvine, the area, the community, the campus, the level of academics, how to run a Division I program as a head coach, and then what made UCI successful under his tutelage for him being here for 32 years, you know, you're obviously going to gravitate to somebody like that because they know the university as well as the athletic program and the track and field program better than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Where'd you come from before you were at UCI? I was at the University of Oklahoma as an assistant coach under Martin Smith for two years. And did you do much coaching before that? Yeah, I was at Cal State Northridge, you know, an hour north of us uh-huh. uh, for three years under Don Stramitz, who was also at Cal State Northridge for 33 years. I mean, Vince knew each other well because they both had really long tenures. Gotcha. Uh, that's pretty much where I started. Uh, I did a little bit of uh, volunteer coaching at the University of Tennessee under Vince Anderson. Mm-hmm. At that time, that's where I went to school. And then, you know, having, seeing all this bounce back and forth, that's just kind of been my life. I gravitated to California because we spent more than three different times here in California as my dad was in the military, like I said. So I always kind of gravitated to wanting to be back in California, and that's why I'm still here. Gotcha. So... Can you describe track and field in a nutshell? Is there a definition that you have? Yeah, I always kind of call it organized chaos or organized <laughs> circus. It definitely is a circus. You go to a circus, there's so many things to look at and see and you know, try to keep your eyes on. And that's how our sport is, you know, yeah. at the elite level, like at the Olympics, people only really get to see the sport on TV, you know, uh, prime time every four years when the Olympics comes around. And of course, it awes a lot of people because they're, you know, they gravitate to the Usain Bolts in the 100 meters and seeing you know, right. who's the fastest man or woman. Right. Um, and so they kind of see it for that. But if you were to actually go to a track meet over in Europe, it is much similar to the NFL. There's the stands are packed. Yeah. Um, there's standing only seating. There's people clapping up, you know, certain events, whether it be a high jumper or a pole vaulter or the high hammer throw or a long jumper or the 100 or the hurdles or whatever it may be. It's impressive at that level, and that's where Americans tend to make their best money in the sport. They are elite, is to go over to Europe and you know participate. It's not necessarily as big here in the U.S., obviously, as right. it is over in Europe. But you know they're making some inroads. I know the University of Oregon has done some amazing things with their stadium; has just got a rehaul. They're going to be hosting the 2021 World Championships for track and field there. Okay. Uh, it'll be the first time on U.S. soil. It was impressive in itself. So, you know, with that said, it's definitely organized chaos. You know, there's 20 plus events. Uh, They're obviously not all going on at the same time for safety reasons. Um, You know, but there are track events going on at the same time as some of the inside of the jumps or the throws. Uh, And so it's it's entertaining for sure, especially for somebody that doesn't want to just sit and, you know, asphyxiate themselves on one thing like the sport of baseball. You know, when you're just sitting and you're, you know, you're, you're mm. focused on the hitter and seeing if they can, you know, hit the pitch. And nine times out of 10, people want to see the home run or, you know, in Daytona car racing, you're just watching cars go around the racetrack. And, you know, I think some people want to see the car act or what have you. It's our sport is you definitely have to understand what's going on to entertain yourself. 
I more say that from the field event standpoint, the racing on the track is pretty easy to, to pick up and understand. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Hey, excuse me for a moment, Coach. L let me refresh our listeners. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI's head coach of track and field, Jeff Perkins. And we're learning about track and field. Coach, is basically track and field, would you describe it as running, jumping, and throwing? Is anything not within those categories? No, that's pretty accurate. You do have multi-event athletes that do all of that. So you have decathletes wow. and heptathletes. Decathletes do 10 events over two days. Heptathletes do seven events over wow. two days. So they're typically labeled as the best athletes on the planet just because they can do all of them. Mm -hmm. But you're correct. So it's either those three categories fit our sport. Gotcha. Are you the head coach of both the men's and women's team? Are, are they always together? Or are they always separate? I am... Yes, the director of track and field for both men's and women's at UC Irvine. Oh. Back in my college days, the programs were split. You had a head men's coach and a head women's coach for each sport. Nowadays, that is not the way about collegiate athletics. Hmm. In fact, there are very few programs that have separate gender head coaches now. In fact, the only one I can really think of off the top of my head is the University of Arkansas. And they've been historic in their national championship uh, trophies uh, and success. So when you really look around the country, there is a director that oversees both genders. Mm, okay. And are the meets separate since they're male, female? Did they used to be separate? At the NCAA level, it has now become separate. So the NCAA championships host a day of men, then a day of women, then a day of men, then a day of women. So it's like four days. Mm. So it makes the meet a bit more condensed, a little bit easier to keep your focus and attention to, which is why the setup's that way, as well as, you know, for TV and not making it an all-day thing. And I think that's the one thing that the track and field powers that be are trying to really work on in terms of marketing or sport is not having a six-hour event where you just got to sit down and, you know, from start to finish or, you know, you eventually get bored out of your mind because you're sitting there for so long. Right. Is at the Diamond League level, at the you know professional level over in Europe, they're only hosting, you know, like three field events and maybe six track events, and then mm. calling it a day. Mm. And of course, that's frustrating for the athletes who don't compete in those events. But then eventually, the Diamond League will pick up another event, and so they kind of you know rotate them in. But that's where I think again the powers that be are making some inroads into our sport, becoming a little bit more marketable easier to understand and to pay attention to. And you're not sitting out there like the length of a football game is anywhere from three hours to four hours. Uh, you want to try to condense a track meet to be about that. Gotcha. Coach, can you describe the events? Is there a way to briefly describe groupings of events? Uh, I mean, the throws, there's a shot, disc, hammer, javelin throw. Those are all the throwing events. You've got the jumps, which you've got the long jump, triple jump, pole vault, high jump. Uh, then you have the sprint events. You have the 100, 200, 400. The 800 has kind of argumentatively been a sprint event, even though it's considered middle distance. Uh, and then you have the hurdles, the 100-meter hurdles, 110 hurdles for the guys, 100-meter hurdles for the girls, and then the 400 hurdles. You have relays, the 4 by one and the 4 by 2 And then you have the distance events, which, again, overlap in the 800. And then you've got the 1500, the steeplechase, the 5,000, and the 10,000. And so with all that, there are specific events that make up the decathlon and heptathlon. And so in a nutshell, that's pretty much how they're categorized. And 
again, scheduling is important specifically for an event like the hammer, even at the diamond league level or the triple A level, professional level, because the hammer is a shot put with a wire on it. And you release that in the wrong spot. You definitely don't want that hitting anybody because it would, it would take right, them out. Right. Um, so that's typically for us scheduled in the morning so that it's over and done with. And then we continue mm -hmm. on with the rest of the throwing events in the middle of, you know, either running events or jumping events. So mm -hmm. that's why I said it's kind of mass chaos. It's mm -hmm. organized mass chaos, uh, but it is interesting and fun to sit back and watch. I, I definitely think the marketed event in our sport and always has been the Carl Lewis's of the world. And, you know, those people is men's hundred meters. That's what everybody comes out to watch and wants to watch because they want to see who the fastest human is. Mm -hmm. uh, and Usain Bolt entertained so many people for so long. I really think that that's the event people come to watch. But to be honest with you, there's been a lot of other great events over the last couple of years. The men's shot put's been amazing. You know, there's been world records on the verge of being broken. It's just, it's a lot of fun if you kind of understand what's going on. And mm -hmm. that's what I think, again, I go back to saying the powers to be are really trying to work on getting the public to understand. I see. Was your track and field event, you said the high jump, was there anything else yes. that you did? Okay. So I was a uh, jumper, but the high jump was pretty much it. Gotcha. As the head coach, do you coach individually with some of your athletes or, oh, no, no, I have assistant coaches or how does that work? I do have assistant coaches, three assistant coaches, and each are in charge of a specific area. I do help the coach, though, in the sprints and the hurdles. And then I have an assistant that helps me with that group because that group is about 41 athletes of the 90 we have on the team. So it's obviously pretty sizable. So he wouldn't be able to do it by himself. And then I have a distance coach and a throws coach. And then we do have some coaches that help volunteer coach with us that coach the pole vault and help in the throws and help in the distance area. It's a staff of about eight in totality, four full-time and then four volunteer that's how we manage our program and our team. And it works out well where we have good chemistry. Gotcha. What is going on with the season with COVID? Well, first of all, when is the season normally and, and what's going on? It's funny. I get asked that question a lot from the uh, other coaches at UCI. I was like, we never have an off day or an off time technically because you have cross country in the fall. Uh -huh. That starts in August and goes till November. And you have a small break in December. The overlap is that track actually starts working out in late September, October, officially with the coaches, and then goes all the way until June when mm. the NCAA championships are. We typically start women's indoor track in January, and then we start outdoor track in March and end in June. So mm. there really isn't ever an off time because cross country starts training in the summertime, June, July, August, and they start up racing in August. And then women's indoor track starts in January, ends in March, and then outdoor track for everybody, men and women, and cross country. Obviously, all those, the 90 that are on the team begins in March and ends in June. Wow. So with COVID, it's been difficult. Obviously, we just had our fall cross country season that got pushed to the spring, canceled for 2020. Been pushed to 21. They just canceled it. The Big West did. Uh, but we are looking forward to an outdoor season for track and field and hoping that that happens uh, it's been a challenge though you know because we've been kind of in and out we've had some practice and then you know had the covid cases mm -hmm. rise of the covid cases yeah we had a spike in orange county which kind of shut us back down again so we're just managing what we can gotcha. uh, with our student athletes and trying to, to keep them on track are all the athletes under scholarship or do you have a walk-ups how does that work Majority of our team are walk-on student-athletes. We do oh. have scholarships that are minimal compared to the number of team members across the board at any program across the country. 
we have one of the most sizable and diverse teams on any campus. Uh, probably is right in line with men's football in terms of numbers, if not more. But there are limited scholarship opportunities, again, across the country in our sport. So I would say a majority of each team that makes up the sport of track and field at the NCAA level is a walk-on opportunity. Some are recruited, some are non-recruited. It just depends on the situation. Gotcha. So you actually do some recruiting or a lot of recruiting? Or... Oh, we do a lot of recruiting. Oh. Uh, a lot of that is on the walk-on factor, but there are several you know, student athletes on our team that are recruited scholarship athletes because obviously we are trying to make inroads and not only win Big West championships, but put them on the NCAA level and compete with the best of the best. If you're going to do that, you have to obviously aid. You have to reward aid, reward scholarship money. Mm-hmm. Where does UCI fall it's in the Big West? Where are we? We're competitive, very competitive. Again, our team's fairly young. Mm-hmm. We just brought in 37 new athletes this past fall out of wow. the 90. So when you really think about that, it's almost half the team. So we're fairly young. We're still growing and maturing, but very competitive. We are a team that I believe can be top three. We are a team that can put hopefully plus athletes at the NCAA regional level and then, you know, take them on to the national final level. And so that's kind of what we as a staff have agreed that are in our best interest to do, to look forward to and to develop. So again, you're talking about mass numbers. And so when we're coaching just specifically in the sprints, hurdles and jumps area, there's 41 athletes in that area. Coach Chambers, who came in to help me this past February, the full-time employee, pretty much takes the 100, 200, 400, and 800. So that allows me to coach the hurdlers and the jumpers. I don't think I said that earlier. I actually coach the jumpers as well. Mm. And so I have a group of about 15 to 16 athletes, and he's got around the same, a little bit more than that. So it works out well in terms of uh, managing those amount of people and developing them to the level that they need to be on to compete at the conference championship and then beyond. Who's the other direct competitor teams you know, versus you say, who gives us a run for our money? The team that has shown the most success in the, in the more recent two to three years has been Cal State Fullerton right here in Orange County. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done a great job of uh, not only getting a good coaching staff put together, but recruiting the right student athlete for their program that has flourished athletically and academically in their environment. But when I compare our team, I compare us to the other UCs typically from an academic standpoint and the type of student athlete that you're looking for. Uh, so UC Davis is that team that really has uh, been historically, annually, the last five plus years or so on that brink of winning a championship, if not right there, trying to win a championship. And what do the competitions look like? Are they, would you call them dual meets? Would you call it, is it, are they tournaments or are they a full spectrum? Can you describe that for us? Yeah, of course. We sometimes duel, sometimes have tries, which three teams, or we attend invitationals. Invitationals are literally huge. They can be two-day meets, sometimes three-day meets, where you have a thousand competitors. I know it sounds kind of crazy. Wow. So I'll give an example. The Mount San Antonio College Relays, which is an historical track and field meet here in the United States at Mount Sac Junior College host every year. They host thousand plus guaranteed athletes over a four or five day period. And that meet attracts the LSUs of the world, Penn State's, you know, teams that are of the power five level outside of the state of California, as well as most of the in-state schools here in California to compete over that 
you know, time. So for us, it just depends on what we're trying to accomplish, what we're trying to do and what we're trying to prepare for. But there are a lot of local meets that are fairly sizable. Here at UCI, mm-hmm. we host the Steve Scott Invitational uh, late April, early May every year. And that is as well, you know, 600 plus student athletes mm. uh, competing against one another. It is open, which means you don't have to be on a collegiate team to compete in it. And so that also attracts obviously more people that are living and training in the local area that are trying to make Olympic teams for their respective countries to compete mm. in the meet to see where they currently are, how they're doing in terms of their fitness. Gotcha. You know, I was decades ago in high school, I, I wasn't on a track and field team, but I remember like track and field people referring to Mount Sac. Is, is their program just like, oh yeah, they have high school, they have university level. Do they have different things I mean, like that? They, I mean, they are a junior college and they just host. That meet has just been a historic meet for so long. Mm. that has attracted some of the best programs across the country and in the state of California. So mm. they have a high school division, mm. they have an open collegiate division, and then they have an elite invitational division. And so some of the collegiate athletes will compete in the invitational elite division if they're good enough, but they obviously keep the high schools separated from the colleges uh, in terms of how the days are split up and what events are being contested. Mm. That meet has just been huge. It's, it's definitely a uh, bear to run. Um, because it just involves so many different people from officials to coaches to student athletes. Uh, But it's also historically put out some of the best results across the country. Um, And, you know, being here in Southern California, you definitely have the advantage with weather that you don't have at the Penn States or the Boston colleges or wherever, you know, outside of California. And so people like to come to have that guarantee. They just put in a multi-million dollar facility that they just finished and is open and ready to, to compete on, uh, which will attract, a, again, a lot of these colleges from out of state, as well as the, you know, the prominent ones in the state. Uh, as soon as we can get out of COVID and get back on that facility, I'm sure it'll be quite the, the meet to watch. Gotcha. Excuse me again, Coach, while I update our listeners. You're listening to UKUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is UCI Head Coach of Track and Field, Jeff Perkins. Coach, since you do have male, female athletes on your team, at this level, is it the same? Do you feel like coaching male and female athletes, is it different? Is is each athlete different? Does gender play a part in that? Um, gender plays a part you know you definitely treat them equally and fairly it's just how you go about coaching them and knowing what emotions you can play on in terms of you know setting them up for confidence and what they need to be doing but again I think it's more individualized it doesn't necessarily mean you know coaching men and women is very different but there is a lot of crossover you just have to kind of know your athlete and Mm. you got to know what you know, gets them going, what doesn't, how to coach them, how not to coach them. But I would say, you know, it's, it's, we definitely, we we go about coaching in terms of trying to motivate and develop and, you know, get each student athlete to understand what the expectation is for them, not only as a, as an athlete, but as a student, as an adult, you know, someone that goes on into the world once they leave UCI and graduate, you know, and what they need to be prepared for. But I would definitely agree with the fact that, you know, coaching men is very different than coaching women just based off of, you know, interaction and uh, what we find motivates them uh, the best. 
and I think I heard you mention like personality types. Do, do you feel like, yeah, after all these years of coaching, there's like, you know, basically five different personality types or athlete type. Is it, is it like that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. The, yeah. the sprint events tend to be a little bit more uh, confidence inspired athletes than you know maybe another event area but to really be honest with you if you're going to be elite at this level specifically the NCAA level you got to have confidence first and foremost in yourself <laughs> you got to have a belief in your you got to have to have a belief in the system and the, that coach that is coaching you you know we've had a very successful throws group who has grown and, and flourished under coach Torelli and you know they're big weightlifters. they're ones that really put in the work and the time and you know all of our event areas do the jumpers and the distance runners and as well as the sprinters but when you're looking at personality traits if you don't have an aggressive confident and i'm just using this as an example sprinter you're not going to have a successful sprinter because the other people that they're competing against from other institutions are ready to roll yeah from a mentality standpoint and so if you have somebody that's a bit timid it's just not going to work in that event area yeah. And that really goes for any of the events in our sport. But if you look at an event where you consistently see high level confidence, it's, I'm just, again, using this example, it's the hundred meters. Uh-huh. So on the elite level there, you know, you saw, if you watched it over the years, Usain Bolt was always dancing, doing things to kind of, that's how he dealt with his anxiety and how he calmed himself down. It was kind of a show for him, but uh-huh. you know, he was also very confident in his uh-huh. ability. And so you can't really get away in any sport, but much less our sport when it's individualized as it is. It's not a team sport. We do have a team and it is centered around, you know, a team camaraderie and, and a team mindset, but it is very individualized because you got to put in the work, both mentally and physically. So Usain was a good example of being confident. You don't want somebody to be overconfident, even though sometimes you'll see that, you'll see the overconfidence. But if you're not confident of that level, you're just not going to have this consistent success you can and should have. You mentioned about the throwers. Is it Zany Meters? Has she been an outstanding athlete for us? I noticed her in the write-ups. Zani Meters. Zani, yeah. pronounced Zani. Thank she you. is a quarter miler. She's a 400-meter runner. She's a sprinter. Has been very successful for us on the track. Mm. She broke our school record indoors. Was on pace to do that last spring before that season got canceled. Uh, she's been uh, a great representation of our program and has done a lot for us as a program in terms of you know her focus her drive her mentality confidence in herself all the things necessary to be successful at this level so outside of her we've had some you know again she's a sprinter we've had some very successful throwers over the time that have come in you would kind of mentioned this earlier as walk-on athletes that have earned scholarships because they put themselves at the top two or three in the big west wow and i've gone on the ncaa's Wow. So that's so why they, I said Coach, Coach Torelli has done an amazing job of finding walk-ons and making them into national class throwers. Wow. And we have, you know, that's, a, that's an event, that's, that's in a lot of the event areas, but for sure the throws has been that event area where we've seen that the most consistently. Wow. So a student can come in as a walk-on and actually get a scholarship because their performance level rises to that level. Yes, sir. Wow. Yeah, obviously they have to have their academics in order because that's a very important part of earning a scholarship is to be academically eligible. Yeah. And UC Irvine is pretty challenging academically, so we have to be able to trust them in the classroom first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But they're doing that and then obviously doing what they're supposed to do athletically and then achieving that level of success. We tend to you know, award them athletic aid 
Gotcha. And is it Barbara Coward that really looks like she's That was really... the name I was going to mention. Bar- Barbara was a very athletic individual in high school who played basketball and also threw, but was just very athletic. So we knew we could, Coach Torelli knew she could make her an elite level thrower. And then, you know, her senior year, she was a Big West champion in both the hammer throw and the discus. Very impressive. Mm-hmm. Cool wow. record holder as well. Had she done that before being on UCI's track and field team? Had she done those events in the past? or, or really? she, she had never done the hammer because it's not a high school event. Uh-huh. Uh, but she had done the discus. And just, you know, from what you typically look at recruiting body type, a body type fits the event. In case with the discus, she had really long arms. That's what you want, uh, discus thrower. And so she was also had great footwork from basketball and very athletic. So those two things together lined up to her being the elite level discus thrower that she ended up being. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Just to educate you real quick, the steeplechase is offered in college and the elite level, but it's not offered in high school. The 400 meter hurdles is offered in college and the elite level, but not in high school. The 300 meters hurdles is offered in high school. The decathlon and heptathlon are not officially an event at the state meet in California at the high school level, but is two events that are offered in college in the elite level. Um, and then the hammer throw, I don't know if I just said that, sorry, is also not um, offered at the high school level. Javelin is also not in California offered at the high school level. It is offered in the state of Washington and Oregon. Gotcha. So there are some events that, are brand new to the student athlete coming into college that have never been offered in high school. You just have to kind of know what you're looking for in the student athlete in high school to know that they could do this at the college level. As you know, you're talking about the different events, are there unique aspects of certain track and field sports? Like you mentioned the steeplechase. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, the steeplechase is an amazing event to sit back and watch because it involves basically distance running with five hurdles in the way with a water barrier jump over one. It's kind of similar to if you've ever watched kind of the equestrian and you see the, the horse mm. jump over a hurdle that has water on the other end of it. Right. That's kind of what it's similar to, except obviously humans are doing it. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, to be honest, coach, I think from the untrained eye, you're like, Oh, well, wow, there's a hurdle with a water. Like what's that all about? But right. You know, kind People of having- get very intrigued by it. With yeah. that alone, yep. uh-uh. yeah, yeah, it, it's it's you know it, it's it's. Is it a lot harder than it looks? Because to be part of it is like, well, how hard is that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think everybody thinks initially when they watch it, oh, well, I can do that. Yeah, and then yeah. you start running, you know, yeah. and you're tired, like exhausted. You're tired, and you're trying to get over that steeple barrier that has <laughs> water on the other side of it. And we've uh-huh. seen people. I mean, you in a sport long enough. Do yeah. face plants into the water, like dive into the water, fall straight down into the water, and you have to get yourself out of that. The elite level, the Kenyans tend to dominate it, and they typically will hurdle the whole thing together, whereas you'll see Americans or collegiate athletes tend to put their foot up on the hurdle and push off of it to get over mm. the water. The mm. Kenyans just jump over the whole thing. You're kidding. So wow. Now, it's pretty impressive to watch. The hurdle technique isn't great, but mm. they tend to just jump the whole thing. So it, it, that in itself is very impressive. But those hurdles, you got to remember, unlike the sprint hurdles, like the 100-meter hurdles, the 110 hurdles, and the 400 hurdles, they don't move. Right. So they're big wood barriers. And a couple years ago in the World Championships, a guy actually like 
slipped and hit his head into the barrier and it was pretty ugly. Uh, uh, so there's one that's, that's another, you know, that's in the back of your head. If I hit this hurdle, it's not moving. It's going to break my kneecap or, right. you know, I'm going to sever my ankle or I'm going to fall on my face on the other side. Like that's in your head a bit as you get more tired as you run around the track. Sure. Wow. And are our meets at the stadium, that far stadium past the big athletic fields and so forth? Is, is that where the whole meet is at? Yes, sir. Everything's over there from the 10,000 all the way down the distance events is, is raced there. Anything cross country rises is not on a track. Obviously it's, it's off base meaning off campus mm-hmm. typically, but everything is hosted right inside the Inter stadium. We have all the throws in there. Now they just got moved in summer of 2019. We have a brand new track that got resurfaced in summer of 2019. So everything's right in there and all 20 plus events. It's fun to come sit back and watch most of our meets because we have more than two or three teams. Again, this is pre COVID. We're a two-day meet, a Friday and a Saturday, uh, with some of the events, specifically the hammer being on the Friday because we want to, you know, put safety first. Right. Um, and then, like, javelin, same thing. The last thing you want to get hit with is a javelin spear. <laughs> so we put those events typically, for safety reasons, on Friday, along with a couple of distance events that are a bit longer, and to keep the schedule a little tighter for Saturday. How about the pole vault? That, the, the coordination that's involved, uh, I can't even imagine – Setting that, you know, being on the run and getting that pole in that holder or hold, whatever you want to call it. Wow. All due yeah, we respect. Call it, we call it, yeah, we call it the pole vault box. It is definitely the most dangerous event in our sport. Is it? Because you're, it's all about timing. Obviously, you have to be fast. That's wow. a very important aspect of the pole vault. You're running with a pole in your hand. Yeah. That pole has a certain level of weight and bendability in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and give back. So once you plant that pole into the pole vault box, you're obviously then at that point taking off on the ground and trying to get vertical as soon as possible. Once you release that pole, you're hoping that it gave you enough back in it to clear the crossbar that you're trying to get over. Our fear, most people's fear with the pole vault is the landing, if you're going to land on the pit or not. And you know, you've seen over the years, again, you've been in the sport long enough, yeah. you've seen two or three people pass away break their necks, land yeah. in the pole vault box, what have you. So the NCAA has really worked on trying to create a more safe environment by making the pole vault pits a bit bigger, as well as uh-huh. putting a collar, what we call a collar. It's like a foam rubber collar uh-huh. inside where the box is, where the pole goes, because uh-huh. the last person that passed away broke their neck because they landed right smack into that pole vault box. Wow. So, you know, it's dangerous, but yeah. I would say 90% of the time, it's something that's a gradual teaching skill that takes time you don't just start going straight up vertical right away and the pole vault coaches understand it because it's one of the more technical events in the sport on how to progress somebody to the point of having the level of confidence and ability to get themselves over the crossbar without putting themselves in danger of getting hurt so i'd say 90 percent of the time you know it's, it's a healthy event we're fine there's been no injuries it's just unfortunately every every sport you've got something that you know comes out of it and, it's, and it can be tragic yeah, uh, yeah. We've had those. We've had those happen. Well, so, yeah. It, it's a dynamic event, and it's very poetic in the way it's executed, and mm-hmm. very amazing. Very amazing to watch. Yeah, yeah. Even the the top pole vultures will they do they make it in the uh, the the pole vault box? You know, or like no, yeah, everybody misses it every so often, or is it like that? I'm sure at some point in their younger life. 
if they're elite level pole vaulters, they're not missing it ever. But at some point in their younger life, like maybe in their teenage years when they got started or in college, they've missed it. I can guarantee they, or they've missed the mat. They've, they've landed like maybe halfway on or halfway off the mat or, you know, some are athletic enough to land like a cat back onto their feet, you know, off the mat or, you know, have maybe turned an ankle or something of that nature, but everybody has to learn and grow. I'm sure every pole vaulter, whether they be in college at the elite level or elite level past college or the Olympics have had some type of situation happen. Gotcha. Coach, I was talking to a few of your athletes and they commented on your attention to detail, whether it be track meets or the pits raked, hurdles calibrated and equipment ready. Is that something that you pride yourself in or just came naturally? I think it came, most people would say it's because you're military father, but that's not, that's never came from, I mean, my, my father taught me a lot about you know, discipline and focus and that type of thing. I'm just very OCD in general, I guess. And always want things to run as smoothly as possible, everybody to get a fair opportunity into things to look professional. Like it's a reflection on not only myself, but on UCI, you know? And so when I look at hosting a meet or, you know, even hosting a practice and making sure we're all safe, even in the pole vault, I don't coach, we have a pole vault coach, but the devil is in the details, like be detail oriented be on top of yourself, be, you know, driven and ready for anything and everything, hence COVID. So we're trying to continue on with a positive mentality that we're going to get through this together as a team. And on the other side, we'll have, you know, a season, we'll be prepared for that. So it's just part of my personality. It's just something I guess I grew up around and then kind of, you know, try to emulate in my coaching each and every day and take on to my staff. And I'm not saying I don't drive my staff nuts sometimes because I am OCD, but, you know, it's just my personality. Excuse me one more time, Coach, while I do a final guest ID and update my listeners. You're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and my guest is UCI Head Coach of Track and Field, Jeff Perkins, and we're exploring all things track and field. Coach, do you have any humorous stories from over the years? Anything come to mind? Without naming uh, any names, of course. Yeah, we. I mean, I think every coach at this level – if you haven't been a student athlete at the collegiate level or high school level, understands and studied hard enough to know what the demands are for each event on the body. And so the, many of those coaches that are in, at the collegiate level have done the sport, obviously included myself. But it's, it, it's always a bit funny when you hear stories, and I, we have them in our own coaching staff, of attempting to do something that the athlete should be able to do. And once you reach a certain age, you still think you can do those things, <laughs> but your body tells you otherwise. Uh, We've had a couple. I know I have some good friends at other universities that have come out with torn Achilles tendons, ACL <laughs> surgery, or uh, like, no. you know those. Have, luckily, knock on wood, I haven't gotten yeah. there yet. But you know, just from even lifting technique in the weight room, you can throw your back out. Like we've had particular instances of that happening. There's always stories behind those where you think in your mind you have a little bit too much ego thinking, okay, I'm still 23 years old or 20 years old and I can do these things. And you try to do it and show it and it just ends up not being what you thought it was going to be or you ended up getting injured. So we typically are best served knowing that we have our students show that stuff now. Like, hey, we're going to model the student athlete to show the rest of the student athletes what they should be doing. <laughs> I think the smarter coaches have realized that as they you know, get past the 35, 40-year-old mark. Right. What do you enjoy most about coaching? Honestly, it's the impact I make on young lives and preparing them for life 
after college because many of them if not almost all of them will never be a professional track and field athlete you have to be pretty special to do that mm -hmm. i have two of them that have been able to do that in the 13 years i've been here wow uh, and so that's a lot of student athletes when you think about the average you know team size is anywhere from 70 to 100 athletes over 13 yeah. years and there's a lot of student athletes obviously not becoming professional athletes so preparing them for the real world many of them have moved on to be doctors and lawyers and in athletics in coaching and track and field at other universities or you know i think that's the biggest joy is making the impact on the young student athlete yeah. and on the person and getting to know the person as an individual and then ended up you know keeping in touch with them once they leave and graduate from the university right how about the, your least favorite thing about coaching uh, dealing with the 90 personalities, <laughs> trying to get to understand each and every one of them as well as you can. And, you know, yeah. trying to get everybody on the same page. Again, this is the largest team on our campus yeah. and it, 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 it requires 24 seven, you know, uh, dedication and just trying to get everybody to, you know, uh, buy in and, and, and you know, uh, is, and, and become adults. And there's some growing pains there. And I think that's one of the things that can be, be a bit frustrating is giving them some room and some time to grow um and not and knowing that they're not going to be immediately like where you need them or want them so it definitely takes a lot of patience so i think the patience part it can be really frustrating you need to have as much patience as you can as a coach to allow for them to develop emotionally mentally physically and to get them where they want to be and need to be once they leave the university because you want to make sure you had an impact on them boy 90 athletes it seems like you're gonna know some a lot you know how can you keep track of 90 people that's that's a it's lot not easy yeah, yeah it's not easy we have a lot of we have a lot of support staff help in academics uh, as well as obviously you know our coaching staff and then you know we make team captains team captains end up being coaches within the actual team mm. uh, so that helps a, a bit as well uh, and just you know managing the day-to-day -day, managing their academics managing their time managing so many different aspects that can keep them healthy and give them the opportunity to compete and learn a lot about themselves as individuals. Gotcha. You mentioned that you had, I think, two athletes that have gone pro or have made a living at, at track and field. Can you talk a little yeah. about them? Charles Jock was the 2012 NCAA champion in the men's 800 for us at UC Irvine and wound up signing a contract with Nike when he graduated, stayed here at UCI for a bit of time with Vince O'Boyle and myself training. And then he wound up going up to Oregon and being a part of the Oregon elite training club up there. And then, uh, you know, so living at it, was able to do it, made the Olympic team in 2016 uh, for the U.S. Uh, wow. Obviously, it was a high level with you know, a ton of success at UCI and then even beyond. And then I have another young lady who's still competing now or attempting to with the COVID thing that competes for Ghana. Her name's Persis William Mensa. She holds the school record in the 100 and 200 for our university and has made a life competing on the elite level for Ghana. She was in the uh, world relays in 2019 um, and has been in the Olympic team for them in 2016 uh, and will compete in Tokyo in 2021 for them. Um, so she was looking forward to that. So those are two athletes in the last you know, 13 or so seasons that have had the ability to continue on with their level of talent and focus and determination to, uh, you know, make a living out of it. Wow. Anything else, Coach, that maybe I haven't touched upon? I think we've gotten a pretty good feel for what the program's about and the athletes. 
I appreciate the opportunity to be interviewed and to speak about our sport and to advocate when we get out of these COVID times to come out and check us out. And, and you know, we're excited to get back to some type of normalcy and to continue to show people who we are inside and out, you know, with every one of our student athletes. You know, fantastic coach. You know, thank you again for being with us. I got to tell you, I'm enrolled. I really look forward to going to a a meet in the future and checking it all out. So thank you very much for being with us. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you again to UCI track and field head coach, Jeff Perkins, for taking us on that full ride through the world of competitive throwing, jumping and running at the collegiate level. I did not know what to expect, and it was a lot of fun and fascinating. I'm looking forward to attending a UCI home track meet once we get past COVID and wish the team well as they continue to work to stay in top shape. And now turning the page, coming up next at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, featuring interviews with high-profile business leaders discussing frequent issues encountered by small and medium-sized businesses. Stay tuned. And as always... Thank you to the blues piano man, Fred Kaplan, for supplying my show theme music from his terrific CD, Signifying. Check it out. And I can always be reached at kboss at KUCI.org. And all my shows are available off my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The UCI Conversation Show where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, again wishing you all the best for 2021. Keep working hard and making things happen. And may God bless America, and may we all practice kindness and compassion. So happy trails. So long, everybody. Until next week.